Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fire for Breakfast. We're now in our 42nd episode of 2022. Um, before I kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsors for Fire for Breakfast, including our gold sponsors, Graybar and Vetro. The Department of Commerce and NTI have designated October 2022 as Workforce Month and to spotlight some of the importance of building a diverse and equitable and skilled workforce through the Internet for All program. You know, NTI recently published the Workforce Planning Guide, which you can find on NTI's Broadband USA website. And the Workforce Planning Guide, it cites the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber Optic Technician Training Program as a best practice. So thanks, Lucy, for that. Um, and is intended for eligible entities developing submissions for the BEAD program that may also be applicable as entities to develop their digital equity plans. You know, last Wednesday, the FCC announced the latest RDOF awards to be approved. That brings us just over $6 billion in RDOF award approvals from the $9.2 billion initially awarded the auction way back in, what was it, December 2020, December 7th, 7th, December 7th 2020. But given the FCC's rejection of Starlink and LTD broadband's RDOF awards that totaled about $2.18 billion and Starry's default on $269 million, and the other defaults, which are about 220.7 million. Uh, so there should be a little over a half a billion dollars left in long form applications um, in review. On the Fiber Broadband Association front, our next regional Fiber Connect workshop will be in Columbus, Ohio on November 3rd. You know, I had a great prep call with Ohio's broadband director, Peter Vogelberg, yesterday. If you don't know Peter, he's super high energy and always on. So I'm looking forward to my fireside chat with him in Columbus. So you're not going to want to miss that. Later today at 1 p.m. Eastern, I'll be doing a webinar with my friends at Lightwave on enabling next generation broadband. So join us for that event. Now let's get to today's Fire for Breakfast. We have the second half of our discussion on whether BEAT is enough. Today's session is titled Millions Left Behind. Beat isn't um, isn't enough to close the digital divide with Larry Thompson, the CEO of Vantage Point Solutions. Larry and Vantage Points are the leading experts on rural broadband. Last week at Fire for Breakfast, we discussed fiber to every rural home. Beat is more than enough with the leading broadband rural broadband expert Jonathan Chambers of Connexon. Jonathan argued that on average, the cost of deploying fiber to unserved rural America is roughly two thousand dollars per location. And he cites the FCC's failure in the past as a result of not investing in fiber to every home from the beginning. Um, today's uh, Fiber Breakfast session is with Larry Thompson of Vantage Point, who fears that millions left behind breed is not, isn't enough to close the digital divide. You know, Larry, I know this is going to be a fun session because the, the questions are already starting to load in really fast here. So we have any, I barely introduced you. Um, Larry is the CEO of Vantage Point Solutions, a premier engineering and consulting firm serving the fiber broadband industry. A licensed professional engineer, 
He's held several engineering and management positions prior to founding VantagePoint in 2002. With over 30 years of experience of designing fiber-based wireless and satellite networks, he's a trusted and respected expert authority on matters related to telecommunications, technology, and regulation. As such, he's a two-term member of the SEC's Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee. He holds a bachelor's degree in physics from William Jewell College and a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering from University of Kansas. So welcome, Larry. And for our audience, keep typing in your questions and we'll get to that Q&A at the end. With that, I will turn it over to Larry. All right, thanks, Gary. Yeah, I am sporting a beard this morning because I decided not to shave when I was in Uganda the last couple of weeks. So we, me and some of my team are doing broadband there in a community that makes $1.90 a day. The challenges of broadband in Uganda are much different than in the US. And we're gonna talk about the US today. But um, so uh, this has been a hot topic, obviously. We, you can flip past this, Gary did a good job of introducing me. Don't need to go over that. But one reason why it's really important to understand, is this going to be enough? Is I think there's a mentality right now, both you know, at the White House, as well as the FCC and Congress, and you, if, for those of you that heard the speaker last week, that BEAT is going to finish the job. It's going to be enough. Um, I think there that could also lead to some problems if we get into that mentality, because I strongly believe that BEAT is not going to finish the job. Um, last week, um, Mr. Chambers, you know, started his presentation by saying that you really need to know two things. I, I agree with this. You need to know how many locations need broadband and what's the cost to deploy broadband. Those are kind of the key elements. So the paper, the white paper I wrote published about a month ago, um, I was doing on behalf of the ACAM Broadband Coalition because they had asked me that same question um, earlier in the year. And I said, well, I don't know. Well, let's, let's figure this out. And so really the white paper was really to answer the question, is, is bead going to be enough? And so we really explored those two things. How many people still need broadband and how much is it going to cost? Um, this uh, just shows several people, NTIA, industry consultants and um, government that really think that it's going to finish closing the digital divide. So there's been, um, several studies. I just saw another one come out last week on um, how much will it really cost to close the digital divide. The results, as you know, are all over the place. You know, starting with Paul Dessau, who was with the FCC in 2017, you know, he came along and said it was $80 billion back then. Um, we've had Boston Consulting Group, Artesian's done a couple, Tufts University's done some. So there's been a lot of people that have tried to tackle the question, how much is it going to get cost to get universal broadband? Um, most of them uh, miss the mark for a number of reasons. And one big reason is we really don't know how many unserved or underserved locations there are in the US. All we're dealing with is um, flawed FCC form 477 data and other sources that are just very high level approximations. So like in my paper and what others have done, we kind of take our best educated guess on the flawed data. You know, one benefit I have, or the more recent reports like mine um, have that they didn't have four or five years ago, 
is some states now have actually done a very good job of mapping out their served and unserved. And so we can actually go back to see what they found, compare it to the 477 data from the FCC and do some extrapolations in the other states. And that's really what I did. Um, but I would say one of the bigger areas is unrealistic costs. And I think you heard that last week as well. Um, people don't really understand what it costs to be build broadband in these very rural areas of the US. And if you look across the country now, what's left for BEAD is generally these rural areas. We're not dealing with the large metropolitan areas or even the second tier communities generally. We're looking at these rural areas. It's often price cap territories that have been neglected for years. And uh, they're very rural. It's some of the least dense areas in the United States and some of the hardest to construct areas. It's very difficult also for you to be able to put these kinds of costs into a model and estimate them. A lot of it comes from just experience on the ground. We work in over 40 states. We do over 10,000 miles of construction management per year. Um, over the last few years, we've done $2.7 billion in grants, awards, and auctions for our clients as well. So we're very familiar with the construction costs across you know, almost every state in the United States. And the rural factor is big here because the rural areas, the biggest driver for costs is density. And um, these, the uh, cost per location that we see in town areas or even the denser areas out east um, aren't very representative of what it really costs to get into these rural areas. You've got issues when you get into these rural areas with um, you know, protected um, weeds or protected species, environmental issues. You've got counties that have different depth requirements and you go from one county to another. Those that want you to hand dig around drain tile because they don't want you to just randomly bore under them. Or there's all sorts of things. There's um, landowners now, a lot of the states, um, when you get a roadway right away, they don't give you utility easements as well. And so you've got to go to the landowner. Sometimes getting securing easements alone is more expensive than the engineering work is um, for doing all of the staking and fielding. So there's a lot of other costs that need to be considered. And one thing to keep in mind too, that uh, the recent studies haven't accounted for because it likely hadn't occurred, is just the um, significant increase in price that we've seen over these last couple of years. And I think we're gonna continue to see over the next coming years. Generally, when we do uh, predictions, we assume six to 8% uh, inflation year over year. And that's what we've been seeing the last several years up until these last two years. These last two years, it's not uncommon to see 25 or 30% inflation. Now, when I was doing my estimates for this paper, I didn't take those uh, enormous inflation rates we've been seeing. I just used the 8%, which is typical, which would be one reason why I think maybe my estimates even a little bit on the low side, I think by the time bead money rolls out, we're going to see substantially higher construction costs because of both materials and labor increases. How many, asking that first question, then how many really lack adequate broadband? Um, I'm not going to go into this in much detail, but as you know, on the 477 forms, it really deals with only wholly unserved census blocks, like you see in B there, which the red dots are unserved, yellow, underserved, and green are the served. 
So really you look at all of those red dots, all of the ones in the partially served wouldn't be counted as part of the 477 forms. If you look at some of the states like Georgia who've done a good job mapping, it's around three times more. If you know how many are in the fully unserved census block, it's about three times more than that if you wanna also include those that are in the partially served census block. So you can see why there's a big error if you're relying only on 477 if you don't adjust it for the partially served census blocks. So if you look, when I went back, and I was basing this on June 2020, keep that in mind, that was the most current 477 at the time I was developing my report. Now they have June 2021 out. Um, but at that time, there was 5.7 million locations in the fully unserved census blocks, which would imply there's around 18 million unserved locations. And as you recall from the IIJA, unserved is below 25.3. If we want to talk about underserved, which would be those between 25.3 and 100 by 20, it's usually another factor of two and a half times more. And several people, us, Cartesian Lightbox, a variety of um, people have you know, confirmed that that's about what we see. And so if you look at the unserved, there's about 27 million them that are underserved in addition to the 18 million that are unserved. So when you look at construction costs, the way I approached it is we had just got done with RDOF where we did RDOF bidding for around 80 companies in 16 states. You can see the 16 states on the map there where um, you know a fairly large cross-section of the country and like I said, it included 8% inflation per year. By the time I did this report, RDOF construction was already two years out, of, you know, two years before that. And I figured we're not gonna do any bead construction for two more years. So I figured four years of inflation seemed reasonable. I had calculated on average with a 70% penetration rate that the cost per location in all of those 80 RDOF areas we bid in was around $11,000 per location. When you imply four years of inflation at 8%, comes out to $15,000 a location on average. That's the unserved, the below 25.3. So I said, well, the underserved would be less because if you're getting them 100 meg or close, um, you've got fiber closer to those customers. It's gonna be less than 15. So I said six to nine. And so that's how I estimated the cost per location. And there's areas of the country, you can go to the next slide, but there's areas of the country that are substantially more than that, that we deal with as well. Um, so there's, uh, there's places of the country where it's $400,000 a mile, you know, when we're doing construction, because it's in the Rocky Mountains or it's in the mountains of California. Um, so there's 15,000 per location is not an astronomically high number. Um, it's fairly common in rural areas. We did a layout for one of our clients in Montana. That particular exchange, if it was a state, would be bigger than two of our states. It averaged 0.17 customers per square mile. So there's very rural areas out there that are going to be part of this bead program. And to think that you can construct those for a couple thousand or 5,000 a location um, is just not realistic. So if we put my numbers together here, 18.1 million unserved at 15,000, 27.3 million underserved at somewhere in that six to 9,000 per location range. 
what you end up with from a total perspective then is somewhere around 400 to 478 billion dollars total to be able to um, construct that. Now, one thing I will point out is, and you've got to be a little careful about this, is I'm talking about total CapEx construction required. Sometimes when you read these reports or listen to these speakers, they're talking about support needed. This is total CapEx. So obviously there's going to be some end user revenues that you've got to account for, some private investment and things like that. That's going to um, you know, offset some of this. So I'm not saying you need 400 billion from the government because some of that could be end user revenues that we, um, you know, that go to offset or capital, you know, some sort of outside capital. This is total construction. This is how much will it cost to build. So some of the questions, I know we've got a few in an advance and I kind of scanned some of those and just some of the questions I've had, I presented this to the FCC and others. Um, you know, some of the things they ask is, well, what's the answer for these areas that may be too expensive for fiber to the premise? You know, there will be some areas that are just very, like I mentioned, that's $400,000 a mile construction costs. Um, some of those are difficult questions. And, you know, there are other tools in the toolbox when it comes to wireless and stuff, but the problem you run into is two main issues. Is one is oftentimes these areas, you look in, you know, the mountains of California or Colorado or places like that, it's terrible wireless as well because it's mountains. The terrain is not very, um, good for wireless, and they've got 150-foot pine trees, um, so it's not very good for low-Earth orbiting satellites either. So we will have to come up with some sort of a solution for these areas that are too expensive. But the second thing I will mention is, and um, you know, I've written some uh, white papers on this as well, is when you look over the long term, oftentimes fiber to the premise ends up becoming the least expensive because of the long life of fiber. So you've got to keep that in mind. Oftentimes the initial CapEx is cheaper for a wireless or some other technology, but when you look over the long term of the life of the asset, oftentimes fiber becomes less expensive because you don't have to replace it nearly as often. The next question is how can we make up, make this type of investment without disrupting competition? You know, And there's always a concern where when the government gets involved, this much money's falling from the sky, that um, you're going to upset the competitive landscape because now you're funding a competitor. The reality is though, the reason these places are in bead is nobody serving them today. If somebody was at offering adequate broadband, if there is a good competitor there, then it won't be part of the bead. So I don't think we're gonna disrupt competition. Most all of these areas, there's no business case for somebody to build broadband in these areas um, without some sort of external support. And that's really what the bead is trying to accomplish. Um, last week, you know, like I mentioned, Mr. Chambers claimed that the cost of bringing fiber to rural America is only $2,000 to $2,500 per location. What do you make of that? You know, one thing to keep in mind, you know, I believe he was probably talking about $2,000 to $2,500 of support. So maybe he's thinking it's $5,000. I don't know. But the reality is it's much, his numbers are much less than what we've experienced when we've been building out these broadband areas. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind too is when we look at 
you know, we have an idea that we're going to go out and solve the problem with this bead. You know, not only is it not enough, but you've also got to think that there's operational expenses, there's replacement costs and things like that, that we're all completely ignoring. I think it's an, it's not even enough to build the network initially, but there's really no money to make sure that it's it's going to be ongoing. There's also, you've got to consider that there's places that can get 20, 100 by 20 today that won't be part of the B because let's say there's a wireless WISP that can do 100 by 20. Five years from now or 10 years from now, that's going to seem like dial-up. And we're going to have to go back and solve those problems too because now we had a technology that maybe was adequate today. It's not going to be adequate 10 years from now. When I started Vantage Point 20 years ago, I was showing slides that said, we need to get one meg by 2005. And I had people arguing with me saying, why on earth do we need a meg? It's going to be the same way five or 10 years from now. We're going to have to go back and address the areas that B doesn't address. Why is there so much disagreement regarding whether existing bead funds will meet the need? I think it's really key. I don't, I'm not going to massage my numbers to come up with some sort of uh, uh, to influence the policymakers one way or the other. My purpose of the white paper was really to say, how much do I think it's going to cost? Um, I think policymakers appreciate having honest and accurate answers to make the best policy. And I think a lot of people that are writing, you know, like they're uh, university folks or consultants that never constructed networks like this. We do a lot of this construction. So we have a pretty good handle on what it's going to cost. But I think we have lots of people weighing in that probably don't know um, all the nuances of building broadband in rural areas. I think that's my last slide, Gary. All right. Well, Larry, um, as always, you know, you you provide so much great expertise. And, um, you know, I think Jonathan's concern, um, and John, Jonathan's very adamant, uh, animated about this, but is that when you start to, you know, create all this um, fear, uncertainty, doubt over, you know, whether BEAD can support what we're trying to do, then it drives policymakers to make bad decisions is what he's concerned about. He said he saw that at the FCC, you know, we could have, if we had done fiber from the beginning, we would, you know, we wouldn't have been subsidizing the same areas over and over and over again. So what we saw with like the CAF program. Um, let me, uh, so Cartesian me, Monday, they Gary, had, you know, put out their cost. Let me, let me respond to that. Just because of the fact that I don't think it's also a good strategy to go in with false information to the policymakers to manipulate them to get some sort of the outcome that you want. I think the best solution is to give them accurate information so we can have the best policy. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, Jonathan's putting together his expertise and accuracy. So um, Cartesian on Monday, they, they um, issued a statement on their cost estimate and they found that, um, that they thought your estimates were overstated um, by the unserved and underserved locations by 4.2 times. And also you thought your fiber cost for by location was um, two times more costly. And so they thought that you overstated everything, you know, your your total cost by 8.4 times. And if they took the midpoint of your study at $437.5 billion to serve all unserved and underserved locations, and you divide, it, divide that by the um, the overstatement of 4.8 times, they came up with about $52 billion, which is consistent with other studies and government estimates for the B program. 
Um, and just kind of the drill in there. So basically what they, the reason they thought that your overstatements on the unserved is um, the most recent 477 data has had 3.3 million. And then you had also agreed with their estimates um, they used with Georgia, 3X, and that, so that came up about 9.9 .9 million unserved locations. Um, and then they subtracted out the um, locations eligible for other um, subsidies, so a million and a half from RDOF, ex, you know, excluding the defaults, two and a half million um, from the ARPA and CARES and so forth. So that kind of came down to nine point, or excuse me, 5.9 locations unserved. And then they saw that, you know, you had assumed 27 and a half underserved locations. Um, and basically they, their estimates of that was overstated by 4.2 times um, based on the FCC uh, data and their adjustments. Anyway, okay. rather than kind of getting into those details, um, I mean, do you feel that there's some room that you guys could be overstated by, you know, eight times too much? Well, keep in mind Cartesian, they said $3.3 million in its most, or 3.3 million locations in this last report. Their report last year was 11 million. I don't know how they get from 11 million to 3 million. That um, uh, puzzles me a little bit. The other thing in this recent report, they completely ignored any locations for the underserved in the partially served census blocks. They just ignored those entirely. Um, I believe that in those 3.3 million lo locations, they came up with the only way they could get down to a number like that is including people like SpaceX and LTD that have already been thrown out that they were uh, reducing the FCC numbers by. So I don't, you know, they, they just published it two days ago. My initial scan is I think there's some problems with their analysis as well. But one thing I will say, Gary, there are some things I, I will admit in my analysis, it was based on June 2020 data. There has been broadband build out since then. So my numbers could potentially be lower. But I will also say that there's um, other factors that could, you know, put upward pressure. You know, this these recent inflationary factors that I never accounted for, and things like that. I think there. So I think there's things in my analysis. If it were to, and you know, we'll be able to um, true some of this up once we get the broadband data collection numbers. I think we're going to start being able to true up the actual location count, um, and maybe I could go back and apply some realistic construction costs to those. But I think we're a few months away from being able to see who's right on those numbers. I think my numbers on the locations might be a little bit high. I think my numbers on the cost per location might be a little bit low. Yeah, at the end of the day, it it really, um, I mean, the way I look at B, it's really the administration's um, statement that this is important and we need to connect every American with fiber. And, you know, I think B, whatever the amount is, that gets us over the, the tipping point because we've seen not only there's over $100 billion when you add in ARPA and um, coronavirus capital projects and RDOF and Reconnect and so forth, um, you also see private investment. So you've seen, you know, all the tier ones and tier twos and, you know, putting in a lot of private capital. The cable companies are building out fiber like crazy. So there's, a, you know, an equal match on that. We also saw with, um, the recent um, middle mile, so the NTI middle mile, you know, it was a billion dollars. We had $5.5 billion. And everybody I've talked to, on average, they've been um, looking at matches uh, somewhere between 40 and 45% match on that middle mile. And so, 
you know, there is going to be um, significant match on some of this. You know, some that's going to be very difficult to match, but others, I think, we'll see. Um, you know, a, in order to be very competitive, there'll be a pretty large match. So, yeah, uh, but I think that you know, even in that Cartesian report, Gary, the you know, they went through the analysis and said that maybe we'll get around $2,500 or something per location match to be able to get a reasonable re return on your investment. If I'm talking about 15,000 a location, do you subtract the 2,500, which would be a reasonable match that maybe an investment person would put in there? We're still talking about a lot of support. You know, it still might be $12,000 of support needed. But I think from a policy perspective, one of the worst things for policymakers to think is, I'm going to throw this bead money out there and it's solving the problem. I'm going to walk away after that. Because the reality is there's still a lot of areas, I think, that are going to be unserved or underserved once the bead is done. I think they're forgetting about these high operational costs that are prevalent in these very rural areas that still need some sort of ongoing support. And I do think it doesn't address all of the ongoing CapEx replacement costs. Fiber doesn't last forever either. And eventually that's going to have to be replaced. Electronics doesn't last forever. That's going to have to be replaced. Well, you know, we have so many great questions and I, I wish we had booked an hour for this because uh, this is <laughs> such an interesting conversation. And, um, you know, so one thing I think that we all agree on, whether it's you, Jonathan, Fiber Broadband Association, is the investment in fiber is going to yield the best return. Um, Long term, it's the best economically and it gives you the best broadband. It's no is very clearly the best way to invest your money. And I think that, you know, we all agree that that we're putting out a, a tremendous amount of money forward to try to connect as many people as possible. So hopefully we'll get the job done or not, we're gonna be really close and be able to at least be able to hump to be able to finish the job with whatever it takes. Um, with that, um, Larry, hopefully you can address some of these online, um, all the questions. I'll send you all the questions here because there's so many great questions. Um, okay. It's just a pleasure to have you as always, Larry. Thanks for all your contributions to our industry in rural America and Uganda as well. Thanks, Larry. Um, all right, thanks, Gary. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Um, I look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We'll be discussing commitment to serve yields high, uh, sky high NPS with Paul Krunens, the CEO of i3 Broadband. So we'll see you guys next Wednesday. Thanks, everyone.